everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Don Watson, a formerly incarcerated person. He was released a few years ago after getting resentenced under California's SB 1437 which was the felony murder reform. He has a very interesting story, so welcome to our show. Uh, thank you, David. It's a pleasure being here, and uh, I look forward to the exchange. Yeah, so um, I would really love to hear the story of how you came to be uh, resentenced under 1437. It's actually quite interesting. Uh, I was working in prison as a law clerk, and I had been doing so for several years when 1437 was enacted. And I was doing helping gentlemen with their petitions every day, but I never really gave credibility or any credence to my being eligible. And my wife told me on several occasions, just try it, just try it. You know, I was always good at helping everybody else, but everything I filed was denied. <laughs> So I cautioned to the wind, I filed a petition, was given an order to show cause, uh, appointed counsel, Mr. Garrick Byers, if he doesn't mind me saying his name, <laughs> he's a good man. And uh, immediately I was taken back to court. Uh, a series of spiritual events took place, it's overwhelming. And I was brought before the judge and he looked at me, he said, after I took this, I went to the order show calls here right now, and they asked me to give an account of what happened. I did. He looked at me and he told me to return back to my seat. And he said, is there anything further? And everyone said, nothing further. He said, let that man go home to his family. And he released me immediately. And I was in tears. And thus, a new life began for myself. So, um, I mean, it, it sounds almost surreal. So let, let's back up a few steps. So, um, you know, so felony murder re, uh, reform under 1437, um, basically the way felony murder uh, used to work is if... Um, you were in the uh, process or in the act of committing a felony and somebody died, um, then you were also on the hook for murder. Absolutely. Which on the surface, you know, yeah. sounds a little reasonable, but then you realize that 
uh, people were getting, uh, you know, basically the same penalty uh, as the person that was actually uh, uh, the one that killed the person. You could be in a getaway car. You had nothing to do with anything that uh, happened inside a place. And if somebody died because something went wrong, uh, you would be on the hook for murder, even though you didn't know that it happened, didn't ha uh, didn't plan it to happen, anything. And so they've changed the way uh, felony murder works. So if you're not the uh, actual killer and uh, you're not a major participant in uh, the crime, uh, then you can be resentenced. So, Absolutely. So how did you end up uh, in the position you were in to begin with, first of all? Well, um, I was with one person. I had just met a guy and he wanted to get some drugs and I was right with him. I was a young man. And so he was talking about robbing this man. And I told him I really wasn't with it. And he had testified to that, to that effect that I wasn't in total agreement with the plan. Uh, then up walks this guy that I didn't know that my other crime partner was aware of. They had been in Boys Ranch together. And strangely, and um, they went to Boys Ranch together and he introduced them to me. So maybe five minutes later, he says, hey, I'm going over to see this guy. So I walked over there with him and I was like, you know, I don't think we should do this. And again, he testified to that effect. Then he went and grabbed the guy. We devised a plan. I said, look, man, I'm not really with this. So he said, man, just grab it, right? I said, man, I don't want to do it. So me with the peer pressure, capitulating to peer pressure, I agreed to just, you know, grab him so he could take his money. But I told him, don't hurt him. And so I grabbed the guy and he grabbed the money out of his pockets. So when he grabbed the money out of his pockets, the guy was kicking and uh, I let him go. And when I let him go, the guy, the, the other guy, his friend, my crime partner's friend, jumped on the guy and started stabbing And I ran to the door. Um, and then I looked back and I realized what was happening. There's a lot of blood everywhere. And I offered the house, I said, this guy's not dead. Let me try to help him. They all ran. I tried to pick him up. But it didn't help. He was he was there was too many stab wounds. Um, anyway, I ran. We were arrested. I called. I went to a bail bondsman and called. <laughs> I went to the bail bondsman and called a hotel and told him that somebody was dead in the room. Someone had died. And the ladies in the bail bondsman had reported to the officers that I had told them about the crime. Subsequently, I was arrested. They asked me questions. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know my two crime partners. I had just met them. I just, and uh, they told me that, you know, through, uh, through the pleadings that if I didn't take a deal, I would get life in prison, life without. I was 20 years old. I had no money for representation, so I was you know, afraid. I took the deal, 15 years to life. They told me I'd do eight years in prison and seven years parole which I found out was impossible. <laughs> so eight and seven is 15. It sounds like it all day. And I guess a lot of people over the years, I've heard a lot of people have heard the same thing. So after eight years, I went to the parole board and they said, that's not true. So we fought it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And uh, I was fortunate I was represented by Dan Broderick, who was the former federal defender for the uh, Eastern District. He took it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said, no, we think you understood that, although it was in writing. So they just threw the plea agreement away. There was no violation. I'm like, but you told me this. It's in writing. My trial attorney said that he admitted, he told me, eight years in prison, seven years parole. Yeah. That's crazy. It was in writing. And uh, there was a decision, I think it was a published decision on that. I'm not sure if they, no, it was a Ninth Circuit decision on that. And, And so I went back to the prison yard and decided I was just gonna do everything I could to learn more about law. And that's what I did. I studied, I studied and studied and studied. And I took every position I could as a law clerk and I learned. And then by the grace of God, 1437 was enacted and I'm here today. So in a lot of ways, 1437 was actually really uh, written for folks like you uh, that got railroaded uh, by the way the law was written. Yeah, it was it was it was remarkable because you heard the story about the, the bank robber all the time. The guy sits in the car, the getaway car, while the guy go rob the bank. He's just as guilty. That liability, that theory of liability is just it's too it's, it's you know it's, it's too canvassing. You know, and uh, it's a lot of people in prison. And now they, they're, they're extending it or they attempt to extend it to attempted murder in a provocative act. It's, you know, sometimes a guy just doesn't know and he's, he succumbs to peer pressure or whatever and he does not know the intention of the principal for murder. And I think that I heard Mr. Mr. Byers give such a great uh, explanation as to understanding the mindset of the principal. You can't share. There's no uh, pre-formulated plan or, or scheme. You can't you can't say that 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 one aider and a better shared the same intent without you know without credible evidence and so that was the thing you didn't need credible element evidence before all you had to do was be there <laughs> and it's assumed that you shared this that you shared the same intent which we know that's not true so, yeah I mean, in some cases you know it's always a mistake to have a one size fit all policy because then you're basically lumping the person that shoots the guy in with the guy who's standing outside who doesn't know what's happening. And that, you know, I get that, that, you know, the guy who's, who's there, you know, contributes to it, but there's gotta be some kind of lesser penalty for (laughs) the guy who's just outside versus the guy inside. Exactly. You know, and to be honest, David, over the years in reading, it seems as if it was used as a tool to get one person to testify against the other uh, by clumping them together. I have a stronger case against this gentleman, but if I bring the other guy in and tell him, look, I'll give you a deal for life, <laughs> then he'll turn over and he'll, you know, he'll give evidence and testimony against the other party. That was the, that would seem to be the standard. Or, you know, hey, with him, you're just as guilty. But again, that that this this passage enactment of law has changed the face. I have so many friends who have made it home, who over the years had been crying innocent, you know, crying innocent, and so they finally made it home, and that's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, before the pandemic hit, we had covered uh, a number of 1437 cases and we saw guys get freed who never thought they were gonna see the light of day uh, ever. Like, you know, they, they had a life sentence, practically a life without parole. Um, and, and so, you know, they figured they were gonna die in prison and all of a sudden, you know, this law comes around and it, it, it's a game changer for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I was sentenced to 15 years to life, second degree murder, and I served 32 years in prison. That's more than a first degree murder term. It was outside the matrix, the, the, the administrative matrix for second degree murder. I was outside way beyond my minimum. So uh, minimum why, eligibility and maximum. So why did you end up, you know, um, Obviously, you're going through a parole process every few years. Um, what was their reasoning for denying you parole? Well, I'm totally honest. My uh, disciplinary, uh, my disciplinary history. I one one time I got denied three years for failure to do a board report, a, a book report. Really? They told me that I wasn't ready for for parole because I hadn't did enough book reports. So they denied me three years. I said, that's a whole lot of book reports. Three years worth of book reports. And then other than that, minor ones, which I consider to be, which I guess I want to minimize it with cell phones. I got caught with a cell phone and that, that carried to three to six years. Because after three years, they felt like I didn't learn enough and they gave me another three years. I'm like, but I didn't have another 115. They said, well, you seem to have an insight. Things that are like subjective, there's subjective reasons. And uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's a maniacal situation. You know, you strive and you try to be the best person you can be. And then you go in front of a panel that are very insensitive, you know, to your situation. And, and I'm knowing in my heart that I did not kill him. And I know that I acted, you know, I tried to help. And then to be punished the way that, that I was punished. I didn't let it deter me from trying to be the best version of myself. And then I did, I was that 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 person that you spoke about. I had given up hope. I, I was resolved to spend the rest of my life in prison. And because you know you try so hard and they just sweep your feet from under you, they find the most obscure reason, minuscule obscure reason to deny parole. And so, yeah, it's, it's really hard on a person. Um, and can you talk about, you know, some of the stuff you were doing while in prison? Because you became kind of a really well-respected, um, what they call prison attorney. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, wow. Um, I think my most instrumental cases that I worked on was the nonviolent uh, Prop 57. Right after we had that, we had the Edwards decision. It was they didn't release Edwards. I did Willis, and I did Willis, and I think his name is Chapman. Willis and Chapman's cases, and they were released before Edwards uh, on the Prop 57 nonviolent. Um, so I was successful in those petitions. I've been, I was successful in overturning several life sentences for insufficiency of evidence, technical errors. And so I had developed a name for myself throughout the system. So it, it's, yeah, <laughs> I did a lot. 
I've done a lot. But you can't do anything unless it's there, you know? And, and so I come up with clever ways. <laughs> I come up with clever ways and it's there. So. And then you parlayed that into your career uh, after your release. Yes, indeed. I'm actually a paralegal. And uh, so I'm, um, I'm a contractor. So I work with different attorneys. And I also help pro se litigants from prison. I read over their stuff, uh, make what corrections I can to the extent that I am allowed. And, and I do have attorneys that oversee my work so that I play within the rules. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I find ways to help them. And I've been helping families uh, fill out forms. I do a lot of work with uh, consultations, family law consultations, counseling, and, again, working with pro se litigation and, and dealing with enhancements and different things like that and BPH. Uh, uh, petitions as well. So the other day you were telling me about how this works in terms of you file this petition, if it's granted, then uh, the uh, person gets appointed counsel. So it's right. Uh, right. So can you uh, can you walk us through that? Well, yeah. So um, what happens is if a person uh, files a, a credible uh, a habeas petition, let's say, and he makes a prima facie showing, which, which is to say that the facts and the evidence on its face show that that person's entitled to relief, the court, by rule, is obligated to appoint counsel. Uh, once they appoint counsel, then, you know, because a lot of guys can't afford attorneys. It's, they have, you know, good cases, they're wrongful convictions, sentencing errors, but they can't afford an attorney and they don't have the ability to articulate themselves efficiently to bring their claims before the court. And that's why I come in. And once we help them to perfect that petition or that appeal, they submit the petitions and the court then appoints counsel. And several respects, counsel, it's, I still work with counsel because I'm more aware of the facts of the case. In fact, that's what I was doing this morning. Um, the one of the clients I had, I encouraged him to retain counsel. And once he retained counsel, counsel reached out and I was able with the permission of the client to discuss the facts of the case. And I think he was well, I think he was, a, he was well, he was appreciative of the information I had to give to him. And it opened his eyes to a few things. I mean, in, in, in being in prison all those years, you learn to, to spot claims very effectively. For me, I did, and several others I knew still had that had that had that same skill set. So yeah, that's what happens once they appoint counsel. Then the person has a better uh, opportunity for representation. And I take nothing away from the public defender's office; they are swamped with a lot of work, and a lot of them, you know, they feel like the best way out is to plead the person out, you know, and. Granted, if that's, you know, history dictates, a person's criminal history dictates sometimes that he has to, be, has to take the deal, as opposed to being exposed to two or 300 years and six life sentences for robberies, but no, no victim is hurt. You know, like 26 years old, <laughs> crazy. And so that's, that's the reality. That's the reality, people. You know, people see, you know, you have attorneys that say, hey, take the deal. We'll be home in eight years. 
we are not gonna we are not gonna be home. You're gonna be home with your wife. That guy's in that prison cell. You know, and so it's easy to plead them out as opposed to run the gauntlet, take them to the box. And but the attorneys who you have the conscientious advocates who fight, you know. It's but a yeah, hard it's, thing though, right? Because I mean, some of these cases they call this a trial penalty. So if if you plead out, um, you might be home in six or Sometimes you even get like, uh, you know, probation or something. Whereas right. if you fight it and you lose, you could be in for a long time. And so, right. you know, if, if you're an attorney and you're looking at this going, okay, you know, this guy probably didn't do all this, but how's a, a jury going to see it? Especially exactly. if this guy has a record. And, um, you know, then I, I understand why I, they would want to do it, but you know the system has kind of really stacked it so that uh, most people are going to plead out. I think that's something that's very uh, that, that that that's 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 imminent, you know. And, and you're right, and it's based upon the criminal history, and a lot of these guys have extensive criminal histories. But then you say, hey, you know what? This case I didn't do, you know? But being able to, you know, beat that fear factor steps in, like you said, he's facing a, 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 a astronomical time. So a lot of guys plead out to these cases and, you know, and they have, they're forced into these situations. He's forced into these plea agreements. I, I have a client. He has 271 years, multiple life sentences. Immediately when he tells me this, I'm thinking he's killed everybody in the house. He's killed everybody. But he has multiple robbers. But no physical, no, no witness of I mean, no victims are physically harmed. There's no actual injury. Just the elements of force and fear there. 271 years, multiple life sentences. And he and I'm like, wow, how do I help him? Yeah. How can I help him? And I'm looking and I'm still looking, you know, that California's three strikes law. It set, I don't know, I believe it set us back. And I think it, it's it's it wasn't a smart move because it shows a disparity in sentencing that legislation, if enacted, couldn't it couldn't fix. It would create another problem. You know, it's it's like a rock and a hard place with that. And, but it's based upon the criminal history and how it's being viewed and applied you know, to, the, to the defendant. So. Yeah. Um, so you told a really interesting story, um, you know, about uh, one of your clients that uh, uh, in order to be eligible for resentencing, uh, you were able to find a very small error in uh in how they calculated the credits and you parlayed that into a new hearing. Uh, right. You want to tell that story? Sure. <laughs> I hope it doesn't come back and bite me, Dave. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, you know, um, we were looking for a way. He wanted to get resentenced and he went back before the court. He wrote, actually wrote the judge, judge letter. And the judge, uh, for, he was asking for 620 consideration, SB 620 consideration, which is the firearm uh, the judges being able to have the discretion to strike or dismiss firearm enhancements. And the judge told him, if you find a way to get resentenced, 
you know, and you come before me, I'll take that into consideration. So he contacted me and he's like, look, I need to get back before this judge. So I'm looking, I looked, he sent me his paperwork and I looked. And so I used, <laughs> I used the Crime Finder app, which is <laughs> that Crime Finder Pro, uh, California Crime Finder Pro. And I did a credit computation. And I find I do that when I do like case file overviews. Um, and he was deficient one day. The court had miscalculated his credits. So I put in, I put the petition in, I put the petition for him together and he submitted it and he told the It was a sin. The judge said, we agree. He issued an order to show cause. The district attorney conceded, but we can see that there's a sentencing error. He was the calculation was off one day. So the judge said, well, he has to be resentenced. He has to be remanded to be resentenced. So I immediately put a petition together for him, a motion to request that he be allowed to be at the hearing, that he be appointed counsel as, as a matter of law. The judge agreed. <laughs> and, uh, took him back to court and he was given 620 consideration. It started the clock over as soon as they heard, as soon as he was resentenced, he asked your honor mayor, because if he had to take it to the court of appeal, the court of appeal would remand for that. Because SB 620 says any provision of law, resentence any provision. So I thought that was kind of clever. And I wish that defense lawyers would take that into consideration. Something as simple as that. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant personally. I, think, I thought so too, Dave. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. But it was enough to it was enough to start the clock over. In which I still find this uh, to be bizarre is that you use historical data from the people who received these uh, disparate sentences for the enhancement. You use that data to substantiate the enactment of a new law to address that. But then you tell the same people that you use as evidence to, to, to justify or substantiate the enactment of the law that they don't qualify for the, for the benefit of it. That throws me. You know, a guy gets nine years for the case and 25 years to life for a firearm. It makes no sense to me. And if you don't even, he didn't have to kill him. He could have wounded the person, which is not a good thing, but receive a first degree murder conviction for wounding a person. And do you know what, Dave? You know that there's no suit of, you have to go to the parole board for suitability, correct? Because it's an indeterminate term, but they don't have a criteria for an enhancement. So what criteria do they use to find you suitable or unsuitable? The only thing there is the murder criteria. So it's 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 ugly across the board. And, I, and that's an argument that I'm working on now is where is the suitability criteria or what criteria are you utilizing to conduct a hearing based upon an enhancement? An indeterminate term imposed 25 years of life for an enhancement, but he has a determinate term for the actual offense. So what's, where's the criteria? It's not there, non-existent. So that's a due process issue. I'm, I'm trying to put something together there as well.
Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of things. You know, uh, one of the good things, I guess, about 1437 is it had a look back mechanism built into the law. On the other hand, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the Racial Justice Act um, didn't. And so I actually had um, Assembly Member Ash Kalra on two weeks ago on this program. And he's got a new bill because he got the bill last year passed and he had to compromise and take out the look back mechanism. So now that he got that passed, he wants a look back mechanism added to the bill. So we'll see what what happens with yeah. that. Much needed. You know, even with um, 1509, which failed, um, which uh, modified the, the existing uh, enhancement law, because I think that's what that's what needs the greatest look and modification in California is how the enhancements are applied and modification of the terms that's being imposed. Although you you do empower, the judges are now empowered with discretion. The look back has to be there. It has to be there. Um, and I think by not allowing that there, you're doing a disservice because you're leaving people in prison that, you know, that have served their time. They've served their principle. They've been in, they've been in prison. They've served the three or four years for the criminal the offense, and now they're serving 20 years for an enhancement. You know, because the judge at that time lacked the discretion to strike or dismiss it. So I think these are the things that actually need to be redressed. Yeah, and again, to speak about 1509, it lost its teeth and it's lost, it slipped, it failed. For mod I'm hoping it's for modifications, in, but that that had the look back mechanism put in place. And I knew when I saw it, I said, that's a dramatic cut. To, to reduce it to what, one, two, three, from 10, 20 life, I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's not gonna, that's a little too extreme when that when I don't think they'll fly for that one. But I really think that that needs to be a, a allow for a retroactive application on the enhancements even if the modification is not uh, not overwhelming, I think that a modification needs to be you know, tied into the bill itself, if that's possible. Yeah, I think you know one of the problems you have is that all these things become political decisions, and so um, you know they they fall victim to uh, you know politics rather than common sense in some cases. And, and so you end up, you know, wanting to make sure that the real bad guys don't, you know, skate off, but you end up catching a lot of people that are really not bad guys in that That's net. True. Right. That, that, political, that, that political presence is so uh, prejudicial, for lack of a better term. It's a prejudicial presence. And it's it's not conditioned on morality. It's not a thing of morality. And I think again that that's that's yeah I have to agree with you hundred percent. That's that's where it is right there. You know, and and they look at you know it's a political agenda. We don't want to let the real real bad guys out. You know, so we're just going to implement this and just we accept it the way it is, and we do this for the masses. Really? Is it for the masses? You know, and, and and adding to that point, there's always a mechanism or in place for public outcry. 
And that's always the thing. You can implement the bill, but make a provision that unless for public safety, you know, this, this, this to carry out such an act would, you know, be permissible or inadmissible. So you always use the public safety. And I think that is probably the, the inclusion, that statement to any uh, any uh, enactment of any legislation, I think that would give the judges, that would give the the the, the the individual, the ability to, to have their retroactive application. And it also empowers the authorities to be able to use discretion using public safety, using the public safety uh, latch. Yeah, I think that you, probably would be your way. Have you ever calculated how much the state spent uh, to incarcerate you over those years? A lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Have you done it? Have you done the math? Uh, I'm doing it right now. So about $2.7 million at current rates. So like right now, um, the estimate is $85,000 per year per inmate. Uh, and, you know, and I, I have a point here too, because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, this is okay. So this is a guy here. He committed some sort of crime. He probably should have spent some length of time incarcerated. We can argue and discuss what that <laughs> should be. And I actually, you know, uh, my actual view is that a lot of people don't even need to be incarcerated. They should throw them into a restorative justice program because, the, you know, unless somebody's actually dangerous to society, right. you don't really need to lock them up. But let, let's assume, you know, let, let's say, you know, realistically, maybe three, four years, I don't know. Um, you know, so, so right there, you know, you're looking at, you know, saving like two and a half million dollars um, ju just on that. I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I at what point do you feel like, you know, um, you got your head screwed on right or, or whatever it is when, when you're in there and, and all of a sudden you're like, I don't need to be this guy anymore. I, you know, I, I can do other things with my life. I mean, you've obviously shown since you've gotten out that, that you had a lot of, uh, you know, ability that unfortunately was lost to people for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you said that because we've had, I participated in, it seemed like every cognitive behavioral therapy program the department had, and I benefited greatly. And I think that's probably one of the greatest rehabilitative additives that the department has is the CBT stuff. Um, and But one of the groups, I was asked that question at what point in my time did I become conscious to say that, you know what? I figured it out. Enough is enough. It's right around the seven year, that anywhere between four and seven, I think that's where transition takes place. And that's just, and I've seen people, as soon as you meet them, they're a changed person. They, as soon as the judge said guilty, their whole life changed. They morphed into something better for consequence. Um, but usually for the offender with a violent crime or a serious crime, uh, or the, the exposure to uh, a long amount of time at anywhere like four or five years, everything changes. 
when you put an individual in a level four institution, he becomes to he begins a program. He starts becoming a prisoner, a convict. And that's something that you want to deter because he goes into a survival mode. And level four institutions are set up that way. So when they transition, and then they say, oh, transition because you're a high level. Some of the guys, you John Q. Sisson, who just incidentally killed someone or incidentally was a part of something, once in a lifetime thing, you put him in a level four maximum security prison with the worst of worst, and you tell him, be the best person you can with limited programming. It's not going to happen. You create a monster. His mindset changes. Very few in transition, you know, keep that healthy mindset. And you see the mental health. Mental health at high levels and lower levels. It's mental health. The, the numbers are extreme. But it's about the conditioning. is what you expose a person to. Uh, you know, and I, I won't quote, it's someone we, we both are mutually, uh, we both have a mutual acquaintance with. She said something to me one day, and it was baffling, but it was true. She says, if you feed a person on like China, they'll rise to the occasion as opposed to feeding them on a garbage lid, a garbage can lid. And I thought about that long and hard since she said it, and it's so accurate. And the way you treat a person more times than not, it, it dictates how they respond, you know? So if you treat a person like an animal, then that's what you're going to get. Uh, you know, it's, and, and that's where I think that that is. You, the mistreatment's there. So. And I know I probably went off topic, but forgive me. No, no, it's good because, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, they hear, you know, the, that, oh, somebody, you know, was formerly incarcerated. They may hear what they did and, and they get scared of, of, of these people um, and, you know, my experience, and, and maybe I'm naive because I, I, of, you know, who I hang around, but, you know, a lot of the people that I meet that are formerly incarcerated, A, you would never know unless they told you, and, and B, you know, they've kind of gotten past, you know, whatever it was when they were younger, whether it was drugs or trauma or, or whatnot, and so, you know, they're kind of the person that they should have been uh, all along, right. and, and they just didn't get the chance originally. You know, that's actually right. That's actually right. And, and, and for me, that is actually true. In being exposed, I mean, prison was an eye-opener for me. It allowed me to, it allowed me to sit back and actually define myself. I didn't have, I wasn't raised in a family that that uh, was empowered with these sounding principles, you know. I, I was very, I was raised in a very dysfunctional family, loving, but dysfunctional. And coming into prison, it seemed like I would be around the worst of worst. But to be, to be totally honest, I met some of the best human beings that I could ever meet inside of those walls. Principled, respectful, intelligent, uh, educated, resourceful, 
courteous people who didn't allow that system to break them, but utilize the, the resources there to make them. Some, of course, weren't like that, but I was fortunate to be around those people who were deemed like the worst of worst. But like you said, who didn't have the opportunity to do the things that they wanted to do, but took advantage of it when they did have the opportunity. And don't get me wrong. I mean, there are people that are bad and uh, probably need to stay where they are. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, to think but, off of prisons, right? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think that number is, is actually pretty small. And I think, you know, most people, if you had, you know, opportunities to get some education and some job training and to deal with some of, you know, the demons that they had growing up, um, you know, wouldn't need prison, to be honest. Absolutely. That's true. That's very, you know, I met, I remember sitting at a table with some gentlemen, like three gentlemen, we sitting at the table. And these guys were discussing philosophy. One was trying to figure out how to do calculus. And I was watching them. I was like, wow. Now, these are supposed to be the, the worst gang members on the planet. But they took advantage of the college program and the CBT programs. And now they're counselors, <laughs> successful, uh, college educated. These things are available. They are available. Make no mistake about it. And some people are there not. There are resources that those things are available. Some people are encouraged to take advantage of it. Some people are not. It's exposure, you know, and how you get past it. But like you said, those numbers of that 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 are, uh, are the worst of worst. Those numbers are really low. Those numbers are low. Most people go in there and they say, you know what? Hey, I screwed up. Let me see if I can get myself together and make it out of there and become a better person. And I see that. I see that. I live it. You know, I live it, and I'm thankful. To, to see a lot of my peers who um, emerged from that situation as successful individuals, family, careers, and just wholesome spirits. And I'm really, really blessed to be around them when I can be around them, when I'm not working. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm really fortunate, really fortunate in that sense. And, and just wondering, but you know, what types of things did you do to kind of stay sane in that environment? Wow. You know, I think I found my sanity in religion. Right? I'm a Muslim. I found my sanity in religion and helping other people. And, and people, they always tell me, you always helping someone. That's why I found my sanity in. I think in reaching out to other people. I didn't have the opportunity to really look at my condition too much because I was too busy looking at other people. And the years had passed. Um, but I lost my mother and I lost my sister when I was in there. And that shook me to the core. But it was by the grace of God and those people around me who, who had love and respect for me that I made it. I didn't go all the way out. Um, but yes, yeah, sanity is... I stopped looking, I, I stopped trying to live on both sides of the gate. Now I'm married, but it's really hard trying to 
be a husband to a woman, a wife on the street while you're in prison. It's really difficult, but she was a great, and she is a great support to me, and I'm thankful for that. Um, helped me to navigate through some high-risk situations. But sanity is subjective. <laughs> because, you know, they, that crazy thing is what gets you through. And I used to, I made a, uh, a saying, I made up a saying, and it caught on to so many people. We looked at each other, I'd say, everything for the gate, and, every, and they would respond, and then some. And so that's how we did it. We started programming with each other like that. And that was, that went, that, that little thing went on. I started seeing it in cell windows on the doors, everything for the gate, and then some. So I started living my life towards getting out of prison. You know, doing the things that I should do to get out of prison, and then then some. And uh, I think that's where it's at. Your sanity has to be in the vision that you create for your future, you know, and just coping. You know, whatever you have to do just to make it through. It's it's a task, but it's doable. I'm living proof. So, last question: um, If you we're going to talk to an 18 year old right now. What advice would you give them? Think. Think before you act. And think again. <laughs> and then think once more. You know, it, uh, consequences. Every choice you every choice you make has consequences. Don't look at it just from your point, point of view, look at it from others' point of view. And don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's critical. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, yeah. And you know, something I realized I lacked too initially, and I share this with a lot of young people now. What vision have you created of yourself for yourself? A lot of people live life on the fly, work every day just to make money, come home, sit down and rest, but they haven't created a vision, a narrative for themselves. And I think that's very important to have a vision and a narrative. And that's what I would empower with everyone, create the vision and the narrative and then become that. So if somebody wants to get in contact with you, maybe they need uh, your your services. Uh, how would they go about doing that? Uh, you can go to my web, level23consulting.com, or I can be reached, Don Watson, phone number 916-253-8568, or don.level23consulting at gmail.com. Well, I want to thank you uh, for coming on uh, our show and uh, talking about uh, your experiences. Thank you for having me, Dave. Thank you for having me. Don Watson, he was incarcerated for 32 years and then freed thanks to SB 1437. And now, he works as a paralegal and he helps other people who are in his position try to get released. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.
Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.